Welcome everybody to the Good Data Podcast. Great interview today. We have Keith Perry on the show. Keith is the owner and managing member of DAO Technologies, LLC. DAO is a technology management and consulting organization that specializes in free and open source solutions. One of the first things that interested me about Keith is that he has an electrical engineering background. He's got a BS from Drexel, which means that he's got a handle on the full stack of the data center. Then he went into network security and virtual systems and got an MS also from Drexel. His company focuses on integrating systems from hardware to software for large projects. As always, this is a free-flowing discussion. Keith is a proponent of colocation. He's wary of the public cloud, but he's all in favor of managed services. Just don't call it cloud. Great guy, great conversation. I don't always get to talk with someone who consults on the front lines with end users. So it was great to get insights into the SMB space with Keith. Let's go. How you doing? Busy day, surprisingly. <laughs> I know, you know, we're all busy, so I really appreciate when anybody takes the time to uh, to talk with me. <laughs> Actually, the sound on this sounds really good. This is your bridge. Yeah, it's just, um, you know, we we do. Uh, I've been doing voice over IP since the beauty of voice over IP is that, you know, as you're saying, and most people say that the the sound quality is is amazing. Yeah, voice is coming back. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, there are a lot of VoIP integrators and that it's something that does make money and, and it's still a big deal, especially with somebody who has like a sound background, because you were saying that you have like your own recording studio. So <laughs> having that sort of yeah. like ability to think about the sound part too, which I think is a lot of, mostly it's just the tech stuff, but it's kind of right. fun to be able to do both. Yeah. I, I think ultimately, I think it every business is about people, you know, and you're, there's, there's essentially, if you, if you're, if you like to be in front of people, if you can't be in front of people, the next thing is picking up a phone. Um, all the other stuff is great. And you can do video conferencing you do, you know, messaging and other things like that. But I think when it comes down to building relationships and, you know, that side of uh, any business, but, you know, obviously when you're in tech, I, I, I think it's even more important. A lot of, a lot of people think it's less important because, oh, hey, we're in tech. We don't need to talk. We can send emails. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. You know, you, you still need to know other things. Like you said, sound is important. But, you know, these days, you know, you, the basic codex, which we used to sort of clamp down on because of bandwidth issues, are 64K, you know, which is the old, essentially, that's your basic phone codec. It was 64K long, yeah. you know, regular TDM channel. And then you get to the digital stuff, it, it would it would be um, sometimes a little bit higher, sometimes a little bit lower. So it might be a 56K, but it may be as high as uh, 80K, depending on what you were doing. And um, this essentially has, you know, these days you, you can overdo it. I tell people all the time, you, you don't need much for voice now. And I can, I'll run systems on small embedded devices. You, you can run, you know, 10 people at a time on there. And it's not going to break a sweat. So that's why I say it's coming back a bit. There's, you still need your voicemail stuff, you know, your your greeting, your, your your menu for that big business presence and things like that. So it's good. And, you know, throwing this stuff within the data center now is I tell people all the time, this is this is so simple. Just move your you, you, you can move your PBX and you'll and you'll be fine. You know, you you have to worry about Internet. But for a lot of people, it makes sense. Oh, yeah. I mean. More and more, everything can go in the data center. And it was such a long time that, that the PBX was actually this hardwired, you know, kind of monolithic system. And now it takes almost nothing. But right. a good transition there to get to data centers, because I know you're a data center guy. Yep. And that's sort of most of what the show is about. Yep. And I know that on your LinkedIn profile, it talks about mainframes and AS400 and all that stuff. So how did you get your start in data centers? And, and how did you continue to work that way? So... Going back to, I guess, my college years, um, and I went to Drexel, so I, I was able to take advantage of a co-op there that helped quite a bit. I ended up working for Sony 
for a year's worth of time. And uh, not that I was quite a data center, but, you know, coming through the 90s, I, I was working in larger and larger data rooms. You know, that's we just used to call it the server room, right? And the server room changed in terms of what it was in favor of these new things called data centers. So when I was sort of, um, I guess, mid-90s or so, uh, leaving Sony, and uh, I did work for Drexel's Computer Center um, while I was a student, and, um, you know, certainly we were into mainframes there. But then as I got onto my, into my consulting career, there was like an explosion you know, of this stuff. I mean, really, um, probably two explosions. There was the, the pre-tech bubble, sort of late 90s explosion, and then there was the post-tech bubble, where you had people um, really trying to figure out what they're going to do with all this technology. So I, I think when I think of data centers, I it's sort it's more amorphous to me because I never really was stationed in one. You know, I was always consulting in one, or I was maybe delivering product and doing a setup for an organization. Um, just lots of companies over the years, and it, it just it was just this um, transition. It, the data rooms got bigger, then they got smaller, then people moved to uh, the, the larger places. Here in Philadelphia, you know, 401 North Broad is, is sort of the quintessential uh, data center that most people in the region knew about. And, um, and, you know, the evolution of that happened because of so much business being done in, in, this, uh, in this space on the, in the mid-Atlantic. I mean, most of GDP comes from our area, so it only makes sense that you'd have a lot of people looking for uh looking for space so uh it, it was it was just a, it was it was very slow and i saw a lot of transitions into the modern data center yeah it's amazing how much it changed and even something like 401 north broad yeah. <laughs> it's uh it's been built on top of itself and you know it's an old building that just continues yeah. to to evolve and take uh Old, get rid of old cabling or sometimes not get rid of it. And you can just see, you can almost go in there and see the history of uh, almost computation just <laughs> sitting there, at least the history of the internet sitting there. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's very relevant to, um, to, to this area. And you're right. It's, it's historical. I mean, you go into, you go into like a, the tier point uh, shipyard facility. I mean, that's like the ultra modern modular construction you go yeah. out to uh, uh, what's now Flex Central, which is the old, uh, you know, GSK data center. I, I, I was I was there. I was actually in that facility before. It was uh, actually right. I was there for maybe about a month and a half after it was sold. Um, and um, you know that that's another world class facility. You know, just yeah, yeah. Thing over I, I saw that right before it was sold, and it is yeah. you know it is uh, it's monumental. It's gigantic. Oh yeah, yes. The, yeah. the Australians would say ginormous, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, you know that's uh, good, 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 um, good, good people. There. I know the guy used to run that, and um, you know. But then you have, you've got smaller outfits. You you look at um, uh, Data Three Sixty Five, right? That on um, on um, in a University City. It's a smaller one, one floor, but you go in there. And it's it's sort of the the you know maybe the uh, it's not the ultra modern but it's still it's it's up to date um, it's you know it's it's what you would expect you know it's not over the top it's not like going into now was it Oak Ridge right <laughs> you know right. it's not like it's not like one of the, you know it's not like one of those it's it's not bleeding edge or anything like that but um, the the concept I think we're playing with the concept of the data center much more these days there's um a lot of vibrance in what what the emerging needs are and uh it's it's you know it's exciting again to to really see a hard focus on it not because of what's going in it but the actual infrastructure itself yeah so what specifically do you tend to do in data centers i know i mean we we barely even touched on it yet but you're like a software guy but you also do a lot of other things so, so what specifically are you doing when you're going into a data center? Oh, yeah, I, I'm mostly, I consider myself mostly the hardware guy because I've been, you know, playing around with the stuff for so long. I was the tink, you know, the kid I was tinkering, you know, I'm, you know, sort of electronics uh, nerd, if you will. Um, 
but uh, for for our customers and data, you know, in terms of their um, operations, we're doing it all in the data center. We'll go in, build, you know, everything from installing. I mean, the physical part of delivering the rack, getting installed, the electrical integration into, you know, uh, into the uh, the facility power. Um, putting, you know, stacking the nodes in, hooking them up, you know, burning in the OS, and now we're into the software world, okay, well, is this a compute cluster, or is this, you know, segmented out, is it is it multi-customer, uh, do we, what are the, what are the networking requirements, so, you know, top of rack, sort of, top of rack operations where, what's a switch fabric, right, we're looking at that, we're doing that stuff, so, uh, it, it could be anything, I'm, most of it, these days, I think most of us, you're doing software just because that's the thing that is going to change. I won't say change the most, but I, I tend to be, when I think of infrastructure, my thing is that infrastructure changes the least because it's, it's structural. If you're constantly moving your structure around, uh, you, you, there's a natural instability. So we try not to do a lot of that. Most of the time, we are going to be doing software installs and the overall management for customers. So you're, you're in software most of the time, but we, we do everything. I mean, we, you know, there's nothing there at the beginning of the day. And by the end of the day, you've got something. <laughs> so, so how much of your customers are actually in co-location? How many are still on premise and, and hug their servers like that? Uh Probably thirty percent with a with a um, what I would call a serious co-located uh, or data center presence. There's there's flux there in that. Uh, again, as we're trying to understand what to do with data centers, generically speaking, when customers ask me, well, we're getting to this point. Do we bring in more circuits here in our facility and expand that, or do we move to a co-located uh, situation and then we're worried about remote access and how do we handle those things, or do we split them? Okay, or we do a hybrid. What I can tell you because I I I I talk about this with prospective customers and and in technical groups more so than anything else because it's sort of what you talk about these days. Most people are planning to do something that's a hybrid. They have an, whether they have an existing data center presence or footprint now or not, what they're looking to do is move those things that fit well to that deployment to a proper data center and then only keep the things in-house that you maybe care about the most. It's, it's the... Uh, the the uh, cattle versus pet scenario. If you if you need a lot of compute and you need to burst up, you might want to put that in your data center. You can maybe sell off some of that stuff to your own customers, depending on what type of business you're in. You may have I've seen people buying you know they'll buy a rack, they'll use 25 to 50 percent of it, they'll sell the rest off to maybe their customers, depending on what they're doing for them. So that's going on. You've got other organizations that are offering their own hybrid solutions maybe doing a Kubernetes sort of deal, and they're going to sell that off to their own people. So, uh, Or not even necessarily to their own people, but just as a general uh, service offering. The stuff that they're keeping in-house, everybody's worried about security these days. So if you're involved in things that are HIPAA-related, you know, FINRA-related, uh, anything that's got a regulatory component to it, you may want to keep that stuff in-house. Other things like, um, you know, email is sort of a miserable thing to <laughs> to manage. Yeah. Sometimes, and, and I've, I've seen things like that go sideways because sometimes your mail systems can be bandwidth hogs. People are slaying it all the time. They're attaching things they shouldn't. Uh, a lot of times it's, in, it's an integrated solution, so you may be uploading files to, in, to it, and maybe it's uh, you're sharing things back and forth. It, it doesn't work in a data center sometimes. So you keep it local. Because you know it's going to be a, a it's going to be um, bandwidth limited. That's where your you know your your speed limit is, uh, your performance limits are. So they decide to keep that in house. Um, hmm. It's 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 hybrid. I think the um, everything is about 
the the hybrid um, value proposition these days, and that is going to slide to and from the data center deployment way of doing things based on what we ultimately do with data centers. Yeah. Well, it's tough. <laughs> the, the more that I see about our customers' data centers and, and how they're actually built and what their bandwidth requirements are, the more I feel uneasy about them having and keeping their own data centers, at least the large scale, because mm -hmm. it's so expensive for them and they keep getting smaller. Right. So I, I don't know. Is that <laughs> is that something that you find that that you know? Do you think there's going to be a time where very few people are going to have anything on site? Or that we're just going to have these little tiny modular data centers that are one rack that do everything. I I think we will always have something in terms of a a a, data, a a generic data center where it's it's someone's getting space in it because at at a certain point the the one the the one commonality through all this is power. That is the one thing that no one can get away from. Uh, if yeah. Now, if you're generating your own power and, and there's different strategies on that, maybe you can. A lot of the, the technology really just isn't there yet to have unlimited power. So where you run into, uh, again, it's sort of another limiter, you know, performance limiter of these things is, do I, am I, for what I am getting, in, in, in my compute, whatever that means to you, is the price per, and again, how do you slice this up? Some people will do it by the amount of data moving around. Uh, some people will do it by just raw compute cycles. They'll try to figure that out, which is actually kind of hard to do. Uh, other people will just look at it as a, a service offering. If I get, you know, what's my profit margin if I keep this in-house versus going to a proper data center? The, the, Power consumption is only going to increase to some degree. Right. Well, well, people say, well, it's going low power. Yeah, but if you have a lot of low power devices, so think of IoT, right, then where are we really saving? Now, most people would say, sure, because it's just so much different that, you know, it's, it just it doesn't work out. You could have maybe a thousand IoT devices before you start really pushing the limit. But with everything going that way, we're gonna. We're just gonna have more. The I, I think we're more on par with um, you know current power consumption. We may flatten right and maybe go down a little bit as we transition. But we we know what happens with human be human beings. We always want more. So I, I think there's always going to be something that is going to be appropriate to not be on site. But I do see a lot of. I, I do see a lot of talk and a lot of people really considering how can we do this more ourselves? Because a lot of this does have to do with security and data center security. I don't think is talked about um, with, with enough veracity as it should be. Um, most data centers are not secure data centers. You could, you know, you, you could run into some of these places. The doors aren't hardened. You know, it's not exterior yeah. doors. It's it's not the type of thing where if someone is is challenged with force, it's it's going to be met with force to stop or slow down an incursion. So I think as what we I think as security becomes uh, not, not becomes but as more people consider the appropriate amount of security for their data, and some of it, it it's just you know you don't have to worry about it to that to that level, but a lot of it you do. And again, anybody who's under anything regulatory. Uh, they're they need it hardened. It's it, you you have to control physical access. You know every data center has got some sort of hey who are you show me your ID or are you on you know are are you on the uh, authorization list? But I, again, when it comes to uh, this whole concept of cybersecurity and cyber warfare, the physical side is is not talked about enough. So I think data centers have a really good value proposition there. Because they're going to be able to harden their facility in a way that, you know, the person, you know, working downtown in a city is not going to be able to do. You know, is your landlord going to allow you to do things you think you need to do for physical security? Maybe yes, maybe no. But data centers certainly with, you know, the 
the every data center, you know, on an on an average would be able to do things to be more physically secure. And if it comes to um, that being a reason to move, I think the data center is pro probably going to win every time on that because they'll be able to adapt to that sort of change as well. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back on Good Data. Today's episode is brought to you by Green Lane Design. Green Lane has been designing, engineering, and building critical facilities for over 10 years, including major enterprise customers as well as co-location facilities. GLD has designed and developed an integrated stack of design disciplines. If you would be interested in a free assessment, go to greenlanedesign.com, click on contact, and mention the podcast. And we're back. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about penetration testing and things like that. And I think a lot of it's done on the network mm -hmm. side, but you have to think about physical penetration as well. But the, the fact is that it's not that often that people are stealing hard drives and that even if they are stolen, they should be encrypted at rest. So it shouldn't matter, but it does matter. <laughs> There's nothing's perfect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of brings us into InfoSec and, and, how you know security has changed so much i know one of your degrees right you have a master's in in data security so that is really so important right now and right now it's hard to get guys so how are you dealing with the the kind of needs that are in the marketplace right now and and trying to service all of that what what we try to do is let our clients know where they stand so so for instance i had a customer um couple of years ago, uh, the restaurant owner. And this was right after uh, that big target point of sale terminal hack. Mm. About, what was it two or three years ago now? And um, uh, I, I, they were actually referred to me through um, a mutual friend who also does data security. And, um, you know, I told him, I said, your, your biggest concern when you've got, you know, regulators over you is that they, if anything ever happens, you know, the feds come on site, they're going to ask you for everything. They and what they're trying to do ascertain is what do do you know what you have and what are your policies and procedures to remain secure, right? So regardless of whether you know we're in a data center colo or it's in your offices, when you when you think about the regu the regulatory side of things, it's the same question. So I tell people all the time, it doesn't matter really what you are doing in terms of your technology, your security stuff and your policies and procedures, it's the same type of thing. So let's get control of this now and it'll make your future decisions easier because then you're not saying, well, hey, we're moving to a data center. Oh, we have to be concerned with security. No, you, you should have been concerned with it already. So the first thing we like to do is give people an audit. So we have a very low cost uh, discovery product that we offer. Uh, and we come in and, and we say, okay, we're going to set up some equipment. It's from, it's, it's an inside scan. So the idea is that someone's in your network. What would they do? Okay. If they have no intel on it, we don't ask them any questions. We plug in, do some basic discovery, get all, you know, see what we can see. And we just let the stuff run. Um, we, we do this on a security distribution of, of Linux called our uh, Kali Linux. And um, we do discovery on everything we can essentially plug into. And we get a report back. And we get some sort of idea of what you have, where it is physically in the network. We, we put together a network topology. Um, we, will, we will review that with them, and then we'll do a simulated, actually not a simulated attack, we'll actually try to attack a system. So let's say it's, um, you know, this is, when you talk about attacking systems, it's, really mostly about your, your window stuff. So let's take your mail server, right? Because we know that's got outside access. We'll see if it's based on what we discover. If it's fully patched, we'll try to launch some common attacks against it. And hopefully nothing happens. Hopefully we're not able to get a penetration. Uh, if we do, obviously we found something. You need to immediately patch that. But that's your one-off that you, you know, that's sort of your one-off that you get to see that this is the next level of things we could do, which is an inside you know, a, a more well-defined inside penetration test where we'll identify the systems that we think are critical and you'll tell, and customer will tell us what they think is critical, obviously, as well. But then we can schedule something that's a little bit more coordinated. And then from there, we can even do an outside uh, penetration test where, you know, we'll, we'll get on the other side of your, uh, your firewall or just disconnect it. 
and um, we'll we'll try to do the the outside in. And uh, what what we aim to do on the other side of that, really just starting with that basic scan, is to show people, hey, look, this is what you have. This is what we think. This is what we would change immediately, maybe as a phase two, as a, a goal where you want to be, and then maybe some pie in the sky thing, some nice to haves. You know, hey, this would give you this little bit extra um, uh, peace of mind. So it's um, we, we so it's a phased approach, but we try to communicate to people that you you would at least need to do the basic stuff to understand where you are because. If you can't answer that right away, if something goes wrong, you're you've you've got a problem. Oh yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. That those audits are are really the key to it, and that the the software audits are really important. You need to know that everything is patched and upgraded. But also, one of the things I'm really seeing, and I don't know if if you run into this much, is that credential management sucks, and that there are so often people who uh, have been fired, you know, years ago or months ago who still have credentials or there are people with VPN access or, you know, that, that that's actually something that comes down to almost the HR department. And in a lot of companies, it's done poorly. Uh, and I still can't believe that because it's so obvious. And I mean, are, are there other kind of threat vectors like that that you see, or, or do you see a lot of problems with things like credential management? I, I do see uh, major issues with overall identity management. Uh, even so much as the the working framework of you know functional versus things versus you know versus title right. Uh, I was in a meeting yesterday, in fact, where uh, the owner of the company was saying, "Oh, you know, we need to do some cleanup on some things." And I'm seeing this data here, and and I was trying to explain to him that yeah, you're probably seeing some th things that need to be cleaned up, but I'm seeing a lot more. They're like, well, "Wait a second, I'm not seeing everything." And and myself and uh, the operations officer were saying. Yeah, you don't have access. And he looked at us like, what do you mean I don't have access? They were like, you don't have access because you don't need access. You don't need to be an admin on this particular system. So, yeah, of course we're seeing more. You don't want to see all this stuff, you know. So I, I think, and sometimes that's, you know, by the way, a hard conversation to have, right? You know, people in the C-suite, uh, you know, the, the, the business executives, the owners, stakeholders, they don't like to be told no sometimes. And when I explain to them, why you really only should have as much access as you need to get your job done and then, and then maybe some overlap because of, you know, people going on vacation, coverage, things like that. And maybe that's static. Maybe you don't always want to assign that, you know, um, you know, as a just-in-time thing because that's maybe busy work that you, you don't need. But it, it, at least be mindful of it. So I, I see huge problems with that. It, it is, like you said, as an attack vector, you know, we're 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 leaving that surface out there as a as a gimme to the to the bad actors. Um, I, I I don't understand it. One of you know, it's very easy to clip access. Yeah, I, I truly do not get that one. Um, <laughs> just, you know, it's just a guy leaves and you're cleaning up accounts and a lot of you know, depending on what you're doing, you know, you've got people. Um, you know, a lot of stuff is cloud hosted, right? So. You yeah. see people, you have credentials up in the cloud, and it may be something low level. Maybe it's somebody who's just managing a website, right? But if that gets hacked, so how many people run WordPress, right? One of the worst things out there that, that is, in my book, it's horrible in every way, except that everybody uses it because it makes things simple. And what I like to tell people is that if it's simple for you, it's simple for the people that are going to attack you. So it's not about being simple. It's about doing what's appropriate, you know, within reason. And you, you get a WordPress hack. They happen all the time. You see the credentials. You know who the company is, the customer is. And now that gives somebody intel on possibly some accounts that, you know, may not have been cleaned up, right? When is the last time this was used? Oh, it hasn't been used in a year? Oh, so that guy's gone. Well, let's try another attack. You know, maybe we got the password from the, from the you know, the, the web stuff. And now we can try to attack your network directly. Um, you know, once they're in, they're in. And all that intel, all that data leakage, that is that is just that is just a bucket of things that people can dig through, and you know, unfortunately, be inspired to attack you. Sometimes it, it is it is a huge problem, huge problem. Well, you know, it's 
<clears throat> you mentioned IoT, and I know that's one of the things that you're you're getting into right now, and, and that's a big deal in the industry. But that means that there are so many more, you know, let, let's say we define IoT as things that are have a cellular connection. That means that those things aren't really within your network, but they might want to get information that's within your network. So that's another way in which you have another complexity that wasn't there 20 years ago that, you know, 20 years ago, everything was on net. And right. now things are getting to you necessarily through public internet, or hopefully there's, there's some kind of uh, good uh, intermediary or firewall, but <laughs> it's, it's this weird trend of everything's getting more integrated. So you're saying, you know, like for instance, WordPress, there are a lot of backends to WordPress that have um, database access to things that, our customer information or things like that. And you can just do a SQL injection and get some of that information. Right. Uh, so <laughs> I don't really know where I'm going with this because I don't have a question, but um, do you see that sort of IOT and the addition of more points in the network as being uh, something that even makes InfoSec that much harder? It, it makes it harder. It, um, I, I, I was very much, and even still, I, you know, I first of all, IoT really more of a, a marketing term because we have to sell new stuff. And my my issue with that is uh, not you don't want to sell new stuff, but we haven't solved the previous problems. So here we are talking about something new, and everybody's jumping in because it's the the brand new shiny thing, and we don't remediate. That the the biggest problem in technology is that we do not remediate in for for anything, whether and when I, and I mean that globally to mean. We don't clean up and we don't fix things that need to be fixed. You hear all the time about Windows bugs that have been around for 15 years, right? Um, we, we recently had one in Linux that have been around for about 15 years, too, that, that some people yeah. finally said, wow, we need to fix this one. Uh, fortunately, the, it was a very, very difficult attack surface. But it was one of those things that, uh, you know, it set a lot of people off. They're like, good grief, how could this be missed? And it just doesn't happen in, in the open source world as much. But it's one of those things that humans get wrong more often than not because so much of this stuff really is software-driven, and people just want to get things out. IoT, though, is, is so much more of a risk because, like you say, with that stuff, it is designed. The whole purpose of it is to take information from inside of something that is yours and get it out there to the Internet so that someone else can do something with it for your benefit, but they're also getting a benefit of this massive aggregation of things. You look at the Amazon Echo, right? It's always on. I don't have one because it's always on. But even I'm, a, I'm an Android person. I, I turn off all the automated, you know, uh, OK Google, all that stuff. It's turned off because all that stuff is just information that's constantly, it's a slow drip outside of my network, outside of my control. And yeah, there's an argument for greater good where, you know, it's helping machine intelligence and it's helping handwriting recognition for, you know, for that type of stuff. But all these, but all these things for that greater good puts us at greater risk. So what do we do? One of the things is that with IoT, the, the thing that all, everybody pretty much gets wrong in IoT, and part of it is because a lot of the developers are younger, they they do not think of security the way people who are a little bit older do. And, and that's just, and it's not to knock younger people their Their experience is naturally different, but we have never stressed security by design in high technology. So from the nineties on, we've, we've always been behind the curve. You get to the last couple of years, let's just say the 2010s, right? This current, or, you know, this current decade that's almost over. And it's it's jumped up a notch. So it's it's not their fault because how, why would you know about something that's never been stressed, right? Um, but it creates an opportunity for those for everything going on and people saying we need to address this. And for those people who ha have been security professionals, maybe in other places, to say, look, this is how we do this. We have all the technology to do. It's really not that difficult. Um, and, and there's there's a number of things I've done in that space that are just very, very basic, but um, essential to any sort of basic security operation of being able to protect data. And we just don't have enough people doing it. So it, it's, it is a huge problem. But for me, it's also a huge opportunity because it doesn't take much. I, For instance, 
you know, um, let's let's think of um, thermostats, okay? And your ability to control your thermostat or your smart switches over the internet. Um, a lot of these things send this information in the clear. Instead of doing that, you can literally hash this stuff. It's a you know one way a one way hash function. It's the most basic thing you can do, right? Most yeah. of these systems embedded, you know, these the um, typical ARM microcontrollers, they can do hashing pretty quickly. It's not it's computationally intensive, but things are so you know the processing speeds are there so that we can do this. So that type of thing, it, it really doesn't cost you anything. It's you know the amount of additional electricity for that compute. You know, if it's an ARM chip, maybe you're firing up the, the, the big cores instead of the littles or whatever. Um, it doesn't take much. So something as simple as that protects you. And, if you, and, and it protects you. You, have to, you still have to do it right because hashing is uh, – it, it still needs to be done right. You can actually do that wrong and be at risk. Right. If you do it right, it gives you something that is easily protectable. And, and, and the other thing is that we don't layer these things. Uh, I, I do a lot of encrypted systems as well because, like you said, if you're hosting, you should be at least encrypting data at rest. Uh, and, and if you're not doing it in flight, you're nuts. But you got to do both, right? So that's perfectly encrypted. Someone takes physical control of it, they're going to have a huge problem. Well, most people that I know, they only do one level, uh, one layer of encryption. I never understood that either. Why would you only do one layer, Right. You you should certainly be encrypting your disk, but you've got a lot of people doing things that are containerized or in virtual machines. Who's you know if you're in a virtual machine, why is your system in your VM uh, booting and everything's in the clear? You could also do encryption in that, and there's ways to have it so that it can automatically unlock and things like that. But we just don't take the time to to really think through those things because, uh, in all honesty, I think it's a bury your head in the sand to ignore the reality. Because if I if I admit that I have to do this, then I have to admit that there's a problem, a real problem. <laughs> and and I think I think for in particular the American market, we just do not have in our DNA, you know, post World War II, which includes me, <laughs> but my parents are older than me, are old enough to have communicated to me. But I I think it's just post World War II idea that everything is so much better we're so evolved and everything's fine and it, and it really isn't they security is nothing to be scared of it's it's just a proper way to make sure that your data is what you say it is it guarantees the the authenticity of your data and and sometimes i talk about it that way so it's because it's a it's a it's a softer spin on it to get people to realize that look forget about keeping people out or in you know whatever parlance you, you, you want to use in terms of what you're doing. Let's just talk about um, the fact, the, the understanding that if I look up something in a database, that that data is true, you know, that your social security number is your social security number, okay? Uh, if it's secure, it protects from human error, you know? Um, it, it doesn't have to be the sort of dark and stormy way to look at things it could be a uh, you know a data fidelity sort of conversation as well so i think maybe talking about it in a different way can help but i iot unnecessarily um increases the attack surface and we're, we're going to have to address it because it's it's not going away yeah <laughs> you touched on so many things i i wish i no, could like delve into all of them no it's great i love it but um you know iot i it always makes you think of anonymization that you know, for for a person, um, a person like your gate can be an identifier. Your if you have location data, your location data, even though it's anonymized, mm -hmm. you you spend a lot of time in your house, so it's it's right. really not anonymized. It, it has to be anonymized properly, right. and it's actually a very difficult thing to do. Um, man, I, <laughs> but but also, oh, <laughs> you went so many places. That I feel like I I uh, have to put a pin in that because it's the the next part is also you're really. Uh, an open source advocate and um, talking about open source applications and how um, that can mitigate security risks. And, and also, I, I don't know uh, how much you worry about the actual framework around open source and how some of that's getting degraded. Um, 
like, uh, you know, there's a lot of open source software that's currently dormant. And uh, mm. so there's no real admin for it, but it is a threat vector because it's used all over the place. So right, I don't even right. know where to start with that, but, but what do you, you know, <laughs> what, can you just talk about open source and, and what your current feeling about the landscape is? Well, um, you know, putting aside my bias, because I, I, I obviously have one, um, in looking at things in a pragmatic form, because you're right, that's actually one of the things that people don't talk about enough. When, when something when, when something is um, no longer being supported, and, I, and you'll see this, and this happens in everything, right? A closed source, open source doesn't matter. Some things happen. Uh, projects uh, in the open source world sometimes get abandoned. Uh, people can no longer support them. They sometimes they go, they get scooped up by a Google or an Amazon or or whoever, and and they don't necessarily have the time. People, I've seen people hired who have done awesome work in open source, and then they they go work for some company because of that DNA, and then the project project that got them that position goes away or starts to wane or just isn't taken care of enough because, you know, you're human. There's only so many hours in a day, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that the open source community uh, is, is getting better at, um, especially in the last couple of years, uh, I've seen a, a much better uh, organization in terms of uh, su uh, succession control. You know, if, if something happens to this guy who's a core developer for whatever product, well, we've got a team of people ready to take over their, their apprenticing now. You know, they're already actively submitting patches and things like that. Um, the, the, um, the value proposition still favors open source because we can adapt quicker. There's just, you, you, you cannot get a closed source project to move as quickly as an open source uh, project. And, and that, mm -hmm. that discussion sort of been settled. But because of that, you'll constantly see things like people say, well, I did this code, fork it here. You know, a lot of people are, you know, like Git. Um, I, I happen to not like it. But there's a lot of people who host things on Git or GitLab now since Microsoft bought Git. You know, people want to run away from it. Um, they'll say, oh, fork the code and then commit back. Well, <laughs> maybe instead of forking the code because you want to get what you want and certainly, you know, you commit back, but maybe you should focus on making that existing code base better, especially if it's, you know, still the main thing, right? So I think some of that, all the all the typical human, you know, human uh, human condition applies, right? There's you, you've got ego problems, you've got um, again time problems, time management, um, only so many hours in a day. Uh, you've also got evolution, right? You things that are um, were new are new exciting today simply may not be the thing. In a couple of years, uh, the whole no, you know, we talked about, we touched on SQL, right? So the whole no SQL thing because of Hadoop and, and big data became a thing. And then all of a sudden we're talking about not SQL or, or XML, rather, we're talking about JSON, right? Well, the people who were doing SQL databases, uh, they had to, you know, they had to take a look at things and say, well, look, <laughs> Relational stuff is still king, but that doesn't mean it'll always be king. Well, what can we learn from the NoSQL environment? Uh, I I write all my applications with Postgres. Uh, long term, long time user of that open source project, um, supported by Enterprise DB, and they a couple of years ago really embarked on adding a full feature set of NoSQL functionality. And now in one database system, generically speaking, I have relational data and I can have unstructured or unrelational data or unrelated data or asymmetric data, whatever you want to call it. Uh, things that MongoDB, when it came on the scene, was, you know, just uh, lauded because of how fast it was at handling this stuff. Well, Postgres is now actually faster in MongoDB. So I, I think... That sort of thing also has to be considered in the open source world. Um, again, overall, we still do better in open source, but there's um, there's a recognition now because it, it it's certainly considered to be more mature that some of these things that the closed source world always is worried about, the open source people have to worry about as well. If you're spinning down a project, offer it up. 
if something is open source, you know, that wasn't, I'm sorry, if something was closed uh, source that you didn't open up for whatever reason, maybe that, that was your last little um, secret sauce, as I like to call it, um, but it's a relevant project, and like you said, it's unmaintained, you know what, maybe it's time to open source that if you're not going to take care of it anymore, or let people know where they should go. There's 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 nothing wrong with, with moving on and, and moving ahead and letting other people uh, come in and, and take over a project if you're, if you're not going to take care of it. Um, but it, it is something that um, we need to do. But I, I think we're doing a, a pretty good job of it because at the end of the day, you can always pull somebody in to, um, to, be, to be your on-site program or your consultant to fix some of these problems and at least get it up to par so that it's manageable. And then you can make the decision whether you're going to move or not. Yeah, I, I I didn't mean to say that I was anti-open source because I'm very pro-open source. But, um, you know, it is part of the discussion to say, oh, sure. yeah, yeah. like, yeah, you know, it it's, it's valid. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very valid you know, question. Just, just in terms of uh, security, like, how, how can you really get a good understanding of the threat vectors on something that you can't see the code behind? Like, it, it just... It, yeah. You know, the part of the problem also is, is DRM, that you, it's mm -hmm. illegal to attack proprietary mm -hmm. software. So if there's mm -hmm. DRM on open source projects, then, you know, it, it kind of breaks the open source model. It's, it's very, right. um, <laughs> it's a weird time right now that so much of the Internet is based on open source software, but that some of that stuff is closing in more and more and more. And I think it makes it a lot more fragile. There's a lot of fragility that, that is kind of creeping into the system right now. Um, yeah, and I guess I, that's I vague, with, but yeah, no, it, that, no, I agree with that. It's, um, you know, like you're saying, you know, at the end of the day, um, penetration testing or people or the research, let's just talk about the researchers, right? You know, if they're not, uh, for lack of a better way to put this, you know, legally allowed or they have legal cover to, to do the research on some of these things, which means, you know, uh, I don't know. It could mean pulling chips off of a board and, and you know, uh, um, decompiling them to see what's going on so they can understand a threat vector. And, and you know, is, is that legal or, you know, I mean, if you don't talk about it, you know, maybe out of sight, out of mind. But ultimately, you can't talk about your findings because it would expose you to a risk. Um, yeah, it's we, we can certainly get it to a point where. Even the open source world has a uh, a problem, but there's a lot of black box stuff we can do because part of one of the benefits of open source is that you can generally get it, right? So if I can get it, I can do the, I'm attacking the black box thing, okay? And I can see what the responses are, and I can still maybe get a better idea of what I can do because I'll have some visibility. I may, ha I may not be completely granular, whereas something closed source, yeah, I can do the same thing, um, but I won't be able to get in the box at all. So it, it's, it, it's, there, there is a balance that we have to figure out. I think Google and some other people do, do it the right way where they say, Hey, look, if you find something, let us know first, <laughs> we'll, right. we'll pay you, we'll, we'll pay you for your finding. And then, you know, you, you sign the NDA and, that's the end of it. We can fix it. I think that's a good way to do it. Some people don't like that. You've got these, uh, I don't know what to call them, digital evangelists. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't have the right term for it. But you've got some people that say, well, you know, if you find something, you should put it out to the community. And I don't, I don't know if I agree with that 100%. I, I get it. You, you, if you find something that is research worthy, that maybe needs to go out. But I think if it's putting things at, at risk, you know, for like a Google or, or an Amazon or any, anybody who's doing some of this, you know, these hosted things, uh, even like a WordPress, you, you know, uh, WordPress should probably put more bounties on things and maybe maybe they could pull together a, a better framework. I mean, you, you know, you, you mentioned uh, frameworks and I mean, WordPress is one of the things that that really just scares me to death. I, I won't let it all, I won't let it run on my shared platform. Anybody doing that stuff with me, they have to be on a VM. Uh, I'm I, I'm going to put up as many barriers as I can because it, it's it's the framework that's the biggest problem. It's a lot of people writing a lot of code that is, you know, is not good code and in, in in, you know probably more cases than not. 
But in other cases, it's the the PHP framework itself that you know we know has got a long history of not being the most secure. It's it's way better now. I mean, to the point a couple of years ago, uh, actually probably about ten years ago now, I remember reading something that even the PHP people were upset with WordPress because of some of the things they were doing. So um, I, I think these frameworks do the people managing them. I, I, whether they engage with the community more and, and, and have standing bounties on things, um, it doesn't have to be a lot. And I think I hope people aren't using these bounties as a way to get rich or anything like that. I don't think it's what I don't think it's about that. It's, I think it's about having the best software out there. You know, um, you're certainly getting the recognition for discovering it, and then maybe that's it. You know, you can't talk about NDA, but the person gets credit. You know, if you want to build your skills as a security researcher, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. You should be paid for your time and for your work. But the reality is that we sometimes want to fix things and not, and not talk about it. And I think that's perfectly fine. Um, probably yeah. more of that should happen, not less. So, <laughs> I, I, I hate to go back, but we're running out of time, and I just sure. want to get back to. We talked about hybrid, and yes. we talked about on-premise colocation, but we didn't really talk about cloud. And, um, you know, I think there are a lot of interesting things happening in that space. It's getting, you know, the, the Kubernetes have come along and then there's uh, Amazon Outposts, which allows you to have basically managed hardware on site. And there are other people who do that, too. So you, you have hardware as a service that actually can live at your own facility or in, in your colo. And then Google just came out with one that's in beta. That's the same thing as Amazon Outposts. So Okay. Uh, I was just wondering if if you feel like that's a good trend to have sort of somebody else managing your hardware, um, if you feel like it's a good trend to have that kind of tri-hybrid model of uh, on-prem, colo, and and uh, and cloud. And I'm sorry, there's so much other stuff. It's <laughs> such a huge topic. Yeah, but I was wondering yeah, what, what you're feeling about it is. Um, I... Personally, I'm not. Again, cloud, it's a marketing term. It's remote services, right? So we've been doing right. this forever. Um, but, it's, you know, it's okay. It's, it, it, it is different in, in terms of how it's structured. Uh, I've, I've never really been a fan of it. I, I've, I've got guys that got deep into it and um, consequently, you know, some of them have been frustrated. Others have, have um, start, started to realize the reality of it, that it, it is not the the silver bullet, you know, it's not the one solution to rule them all. Uh, I think, unfortunately, a lot of times companies are looking to get rid of people and replace them with technology, and that most definitely has not happened. If anything, it's brought on more people because the the cloud stuff, especially if you look at an Amazon who's um, got a lot of, you know, Amazon's, I, I guess it's microservices, really, some of the traditional AWS-type things, where it's it's very granular, which is good because you can bill in very small increments, but what I found with cloud, uh, over you know since its inception, is that um, it, it really only works for a very narrow set of um, you know mission parameters, right? It, it when you when you look at all the things you can do when you talk about 100% cloud, it's just not going to work for for the vast majority of people. It's there's always going to be I think some sort of hybrid. Uh, it, it's it's good to hear that. Amazon and, and others are coming up with some different things. I, I know, you know, Kubernetes, which is, you know, from Google, you know, something they open sourced so that, you know, other people get their hands on it. Um, I'm always going to be a fan of people having their own technical people in-house or using consultants like me who are, who are going to be more like a, a partner. I mean, as a consultant, I'm just really just someone who's outside the agency who's going to br bring a whole variety of skill sets to bear because I'm looking across all my clients and I can leverage that for any particular client. But, you know, we're, we're just, you know, it's like outside counsel, right? We're, we're here for you, you know, so we're part of the team. Um, I, I think it's always better to, to go that route and have people build specifically for your presence as opposed to, you know, 100%, you know, here's our box, we're going to manage it drop it off one site, it's sort of sealed off from you. Um, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. I, I, I do think for certain cases that may be a good idea, but most of the time I don't think that's a good idea. That people who produce data own their data, 
And there's a lot of discussion now. You look at what's going on with Facebook, the concept of, well, we, you know, Facebook owns all your data. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I'm, I'm waiting for the Supreme Court challenge to it because I, I think that's, that's completely wrong. Facebook would not be Facebook without people putting their data in. So I think ultimately, legally, it's a bad idea. And I think, you know, practically speaking, it's, it's not a good idea either. So can it work? Sure. I, I think it will. And the fact that they're doing it means that they know something was missing. So well, like I said, I think cloud was always um, overhyped, just like a lot of things are initially. But yeah. it's a good trend. I mean, that's, you know, I, um, I, 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 some of my guys are looking at Kubernetes and looking at doing some pretty interesting things with that. Uh, I looked at Apache Mythos a couple of years ago. And I think it's a great tool for for data centers, especially for the data center that's, you know, it's an in-house data center, right? You know, a company owns it, their business lines are in there, but something like an Apache Mythos, which is the free version, but DCOS, which is a paid version, I think that's a great idea how you can put your traditional compute workloads next to your, say, Hadoop and big data workloads, you know, or your, really, your NoSQL stuff, right? I, I the, the ability to have some elasticity in how that's managed, I think that's a great idea. But again, that's in-house. That's somebody saying, you know, we're looking at our complete um, data center and we're going to be able to dynamically assign resources. Uh, I, 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 I think that's the better way to go. I hope that wins out. But, you know, uh, Amazon in particular has a has a lot of money <laughs> they they can certainly make this more loss leader than probably anybody else including microsoft other than google and and google's changing now i'm not real happy with some of what google's done recently with uh, uh with um you know we're shutting down services and, and some of the things mm. Uh, I'm one of those people that's wearing the black armband because Google Google Plus is shutting down. But uh, you know, <laughs> right. I, I don't I don't like how they're um, I don't like how they're being run right now because of because of that. But some other but some other things as well. I, I think they're still a good steward of, um, in particular, open source technology. But just they're I think they're a good technology company still. But um, yeah, I I think I think we need to continue to develop and nurture the skills in-house because if you don't know what's going on with your data, you don't know what's going on with your business. Um, I, I a hundred percent agree. And I, I hate to say it cause I could talk to you for hours, Keith, but <laughs> I think uh, we have to end it there. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. So, so how can people find you online? Um, you, you're on LinkedIn, but is there any other stuff? Uh, well, pretty much through my website, uh, daotechnologies.com. You can, you know, put the www in front of that, but either way. Um, LinkedIn is another choice. That's, you know, sometimes people hit me there, but um, really the website. And, um, yeah, you know, set, you know, send me an email. There's um, uh, an info link uh, email address on there. That, that actually comes to directly <laughs> to me. Uh, but um, I'm always looking to... Um, help people get control of their technology and solve some of those pain points and, um, you know, help, help people do business and help people do better in their, in their operations and, and, and really make this technology work for you. Cause like you said, it, it is, you know, almost everything we, everything we could touch on is its own topic that you can talk hours about and, and, and get yeah. into There's so much these days. It's, so, it's, you know, every day it's a learning experience. If if I'm not helping clients, I'm I'm reading and I'm researching. So uh, I appreciate uh, having the conversation with you and and um, you know getting the information out. It's um, you know this is good. You're doing you're doing a good service. Talk about the data center side of things. It's it's um, something that gets overlooked. Yeah, well, I I would love to have you come on again. I I just I feel like there's a lot more to talk about, and uh, I just really appreciated talking to you. So. Sure. Thank you very much, Keith. Happy to do it, yeah. Absolutely. No, thank you for having me. And yeah, if you want to do it again, I'd be happy to do it. That's our show. I'd like to thank Keith Perry. You can find him on LinkedIn and at daotechnologies.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Our Twitter is at 
data underscore good. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Greenlane Design, www.greenlanedesign.com. Be good, everybody. We'll talk to you next time on the podcast.